keep um, Exodus open. We really are going to be diving into really 11 to 13. Um, it's a bigger chunk. Um, but uh, my name, sorry, if, if you're visiting, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really lovely to have you along. Keep that part of the Bible open. If you don't have a Bible, go and grab one from the back. And if you don't own a Bible, write your name in that one. It's yours. Um, but how about I pray and we'll rip straight in. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you'd help us by your spirit as we turn now to your word. As we seek to understand the events of the exodus of Israel out of Egypt, we ask that you would also help us to recognize our own plight, uh, not as slaves to another nation, but as slaves to sin and death, trapped with no way out, except that you would move to deliver us. And Father, we thank you that you have provided us a rescue and a rescuer in Christ. And may no one leave here today undelivered by him. Amen. All right, I want to ask you, what were you doing on July 10, 2018? Probably mid-afternoon. Anyone know what they were doing? July 10, 2018. I don't expect you to answer that. In fact, I assume that it... Oh, sorry, it was a Tuesday. Does that help? No, of course it doesn't help. It's a long time ago. It's probably another day that's just slipped from your memory, blended into so many other you know, uh, non-memorable days in your life. But you know who that day or that date will forever be etched in the memories of? It'll be remembered by this under-16s Thai soccer team and all their families. This will be remembered as a day of miraculous deliverance. Do you remember this now? You tracking with this? You see, on June 23rd, 2018, 18 days before July 10, 12 members of the Wild Boars under-16 soccer team and their coach finished a training session. They rode their bikes to a popular local cave system named uh, Tam Luan to hang out together, to explore deeper into the back recesses of the cave than any of them have done before. It was a familiar space to them. They'd been there before. It's a bit of a bonding thing they were doing. No problems with that until it started raining. Now, of course, that doesn't sound like a big drama at first either. I mean, they were in a cave. You don't get necessarily wet from rain in a cave. What's the problem? But you need to understand something about the Tam Luan cave system it's a seasonal cave system it means it's closed off to the public every year around mid-july in preparation for the monsoon season it's a it's a cave system that is subject to significant flooding now it doesn't seem like a problem at the minute either does it because this is early well yeah early late june well before the monsoon season's uh, due to start but the rains came early that year didn't they The boys, blissfully unaware, heading up to the back of the cave, eventually realised they'd been cut off from the cave's exit by the rising waters, which continued to flow in. In fact, when they realised that all they could do was be forced deeper and deeper into the cave system in search of higher and higher ground. Do you know they ended up four kilometres inside that cave system? Have a look at the picture. That's where they started. That's where they ended up. In fact, this, this diagram doesn't even give uh, justice to how much water was in between them. There was billions of litres of water between them and the exit. No way out. They were trapped. Helpless. Hopeless. In fact, their only hope of deliverance was from a rescue from the outside. Do you understand what I mean by that? In fact, they tried to dig. Uh, I'm not sure if it shows in here, but they were something like 1,600 metres below the surface level. Fat lot of of good digging is going to do. Helpless, hopeless, except that a deliverance would come from outside. 
Now, obviously, as you've, you've known the story, if you know the story, they were rescued. If you've never actually heard the story of it, Dead Set, get on uh, Netflix, did a, a documentary, Thai Cave Rescue. I think there's several by National Geographic. Really gives you an insight into the magnificence and the miraculousness of the rescue attempt. Like crazy good stuff. Have a look at it there. Have a look at it by all means. But I start this way uh, today to sort of help us get ready to hear another, I want to say even more miraculous rescue story. It's one that starts in Israel, with Israel rather, in Egypt, but it surprisingly actually involves every single person in here today as well. You know, we've been anticipating this from the beginning of our series in Exodus. It first started in the, in the, in the first chapter, in fact, when the king of Egypt, concerned at the increasing number of the Hebrew people, he made an official government policy. Do you remember what that policy was? Kill every Hebrew baby boy. Toss him into the Nile River. That's how I'll subjugate these people. And we heard at the very beginning of a miraculous deliverance of a one particular Hebrew baby boy. It was, his name was Moses. He was rescued out of the Nile River by Pharaoh's own daughter and raised in the palace as her adopted son. And we go, okay, this has got some merit. This is pregnant with possibility, this story. But as promising as it started, it quickly took a south turn as well as Moses murders an Egyptian slave driver and then needs to flee Egypt. We've flashed forward as we've read through 40 more years. Moses is now 80. He's shepherding in Midian, a long way removed from Egypt, where he has a personal and powerful encounter with God himself in the wilderness. Through that not burning bush event, we saw that God revealed himself with sharper clarity than he had to Moses' ancestors. He revealed himself by his personal name, Yahweh, the great I am, the self-defining, exclusive, unique God out of over all of creation. And as such, he sends Moses back with a message, with a mission, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go, lead Israel out of slavery. And from the very get-go, even then, as before he arrives back in Egypt, Yahweh tells Moses what to expect. Essentially, you've already read that Pharaoh will let Israel go, but not before refusing lots of times. Not before Yahweh has the occasion to powerfully reveal himself in Egypt, in judgment, in judgment over Pharaoh, in judgment of all the supposed Egyptian gods. In fact, just really quickly, go back with me if you like. Exodus three twelve. No, no, Exodus three nineteen and 20. It said this, Yahweh speaking to Moses well before he's gone back to Egypt. He says, but I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with wonders that I'll perform among them. After that, he will let you go. It's exactly how it plays out, isn't it? We heard it last week. Moses and Aaron confront the Pharaoh time and time again. They declare Yahweh's command to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so Yahweh moves against Egypt. And he sends nine strikes or nine plagues against Egypt, each one designed to reveal with sharper clarity to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, even to us who read them three and a half thousand years later, 
to reveal that it is Yahweh who is the one true and living God, powerful over all creation. And now we come to the tenth and the final strike against Pharaoh and against Egypt. And as Darcy mentioned last week, this tenth strike is a little different from all the others. But again, it's been clearly communicated by Yahweh from the beginning. In fact, almost in a sort of a direct response, if you like, to Pharaoh's initial, initial government policy when he tried to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. See, now Yahweh is going to bring back on Pharaoh's head a similar judgment in his final strike. Have a look at it there in Exodus 11. Four to six. Let me read it for you. This is really the con- the the, con- uh, the context for this Passover thing that we're going to look at. Exodus eleven four to six. So Moses says, "This is what the Lord says: About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn of the female slave who is at her handmill." And all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than ever has been or ever will be again. Do you hear that? Yahweh's final strike is to come in in judgment over the whole land of Egypt and take the life of every firstborn male. And did you notice who that's going to affect, by the way? Did you notice who it's going to affect? Everyone. 11 verse 5, from the firstborn in Pharaoh's house to the firstborn of the slave woman, even to the firstborn of the cattle in the field, this last strike is all-encompassing. God is moving in judgment over everybody in the land of Egypt. It's a pretty stark moment of realisation about who Yahweh is, isn't it? It's actually one that we need to take stock of as well, time and time again. It's realising that he is the one and true living God over all of the universe. It's to recognise that this Yahweh is the only one with power over life and death. Get this. No one lives except by Yahweh's decision. No one dies except by Yahweh's decision. Have you reconciled that? It's this moment of realising who the God of the Bible is, who he reveals himself to be, the only final authority over all of history, over all of humanity. It's that moment of realisation which can kind of make you feel trapped like a soccer team in a cave, no way out. No way to avoid the inevitable judgement of God on your own. Unless, of course, God provides a way out. You see, every family in Egypt on this night is going to suffer significant loss. With no means of reversal, someone's going to die. But there's an amazing twist in the tale here, friends, did you notice? Because Yahweh does provide a means of escape. He does provide a means of deliverance from this last strike. Just as he's done in all the other plagues against Egypt, Yahweh is going to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. He's going to make a distinction between his people and his enemies. In fact, he did it all through the plagues. 
If you want to look them up, have a look. If you want to scribble these down, 8, uh, 22 and 23, chapter 9, verses 4, uh, 4 and 7, and 25 and 26. Uh, chapter 10, verses 22 to 23. Uh, time and time again, it's Yahweh making a distinction between Israel and Egypt, between his people and his enemies. He constantly did this, and he's going to do it again, but with a difference. See, where before Israel did nothing but God distinguished, now Israel are called to do something in order to receive Yahweh's protection. But I want you to hear, it's not a means of earning their deliverance. Rather, it's a symbolic act of appropriating or accepting the deliverance that Yahweh has offered. This is what chapter 12 is all about. It's why I've titled it God's Passover Provision. It's the means by which Yahweh will distinguish between people. It's actually the means by which families in Egypt will distinguish themselves as either those who trust Yahweh or those who don't. Now we heard it read there by Saul, didn't we? Through Moses, God gives very specific instructions for how Israel are to participate in this Passover provision. Let me skim the details. Just skim chapter 12 with me. I'll sort of reference where I'm going here. This is what they're to do. Each family is to select an appropriately sized lamb or goat, chapters 3 and 4. Sorry, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 12. It's to be a prime animal, a year old male, no defects, verse 5. They're to slaughter it on a specific day, verse 6. They're to paint the blood of that slaughtered animal on the sides and the tops of their door frame, verse 7. They're to eat the meat of that animal with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast in verse 8. They're to cook the meat by roasting it over a fire, not raw, not boiled, verse 9. No bones of the animal are to be broken, verse 46. They must eat the meat inside, not outside the house. And what's more, they're to eat it dressed ready to travel. Have you, have you sort of, your, your loins girded? Have you long dress sort of thing that they're wearing, tucked up into your belt, staff in your hand, ready to roll, verse 11, and burn up any leftovers. Don't leave anything, anything till morning, verse 10. Now we look at that and we go, why is God so specific on these instructions? Is that not a question you have? What the heck is he on about here? I mean, the short answer is they're not told immediately what the significance of all this is. Some of you who have read the New Testament will have picked up on the significance of some of these instructions for what happens later. But right now, they're not told why. They're just told who and they're just told what. This is what you're to do. This is who tells you to do it. In fact, it's important to recognize Yahweh as the great I am, as the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the all-good God of the universe. He can instruct as he sees fit and he's always right in doing so. That's the first thing to see, Israel. And more significant than that, in fact, this demonstrates that all are under Yahweh's judgment. All have fallen short of meriting Yahweh's favor, both the Hebrews and the Egyptians. No one's able to make themselves safe from this last strike when he comes in judgment. Everyone in the land of Egypt is equally trapped. Someone from every household in Egypt must die. Though that's confronting, that's true, and God is right to determine this. In fact, you know what? You shouldn't be surprised or scandalized by this. 
That's the truth that God had made plain for all humanity. No one is blameless before God based on their own merit. No one is safe by their own actions. In fact, God even made this plain to the Hebrews in the days of Moses. Moses records this, if you want to flick it to it, I think I put it up on the screen as well. Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 to 8. Through Moses, Yahweh reminds Israel why he made a promise to Abraham in the first place, why he delivered Israel from Egypt. Have a look at Deuteronomy 7, 6, speaking to Israel specifically. Moses says, For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Yahweh did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. And on he goes. Did you hear that again, friends? Why did, why did Yahweh choose to save Israel? It's not because they deserved it. It's not because they were more impressive as a cultural group than any other one. No, they weren't. They weren't even more numerous than the other. No, it was simply because he set his affections on these people. God chose to be merciful to them. And through them to be merciful to all who would trust him. And so in his kindness, God provides an alternative solution for those who listen and trust. And as his judgment comes over all people in the land of Egypt, instead of requiring the death of the firstborn son, Yahweh allows for a sacrifice to be made instead. God allowed for a lamb or a goat to be sacrificed at the precise moment of his choosing as a substitute, as a stand-in for each household. God determined, through no compulsion from anything out there, in and of himself, he determined to count the death of a lamb and the symbolic smearing of the blood over the doorposts of a house as an acceptable replacement. I mean, it's just what we read there in chapter 12, verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. You see what God is setting up here? It is the blood of another, a substitute, a sacrifice that Yahweh will accept in lieu of a firstborn son. For all who hear, and not just those who hear, but all who trust his Passover provision by following through, signified with the blood marking on their doorpost. These are the households that Yahweh determines to pass over. And it's exactly what God does. We heard Sal read it there in 1229 to 30 at midnight. Yahweh did as he said he would. He struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From Pharaoh's house to the prisoner in the dungeon to the cattle in the field. But all the households with the blood of a substitute on their doorpost, he passes over. Now, did you notice as well when Sal read it out here, God didn't just give Moses instructions for how Israel were to participate in his Passover provision, but he also gave 
clear instructions from the get-go about how they were to commemorate or remember this event going forward. In fact, we saw it there at the very beginning of 12, verse 2. What does it say? It says, this month is to be for you the first month of the year. Get this. This is a game changer. This is a history-shaping event for Israel. It is a reset moment. An event that Yahweh tells Israel then very specifically in 1214, you are to commemorate this day, to celebrate it in future generations as a festival to Yahweh, a a deliberate calling to mind of Yahweh's mighty act of deliverance. There's three things he says in there, and I'm going to skip over it for the sake of time, but basically it's a, a, a getting rid of yeast. Again, significance of the New Testament, I'm just going to leave there for a minute. It's a recognition or a, a, a celebrating in the Passover meal itself. And it's a very clear instruction about who is not to participate. It's actually people who are part of the covenant community, people who are taking on for themselves the symbolic representation of being one of God's people. For the sake of time, I'm going to pass over the details. Sorry for that. Oh, that had to happen, as if that wasn't going to happen. Who's surprised? Not me. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to skip over those uh, details about how they're to remember, uh, remember or commemorate this event in history because I want us to see how it actually relates to us here today. In fact, I've put it in your sermon notes, your little sermon insight you got there. Flip it over because this whole event is actually all about Jesus. Right? This whole event is preparing us, it's preparing Israel and it's preparing the world for the greater Exodus movement that's to come. Not the, uh, not the deliverance of a physical nation from slavery to another nation. More significantly, it's about the deliverance from sin and death and the final judgment of God in which all humanity will otherwise fall short. You see, this is consistent in the whole teaching of Scripture, all of God's revealed world, word. Humanity collectively, presently, is trapped with no way out like a Thai soccer team in the back of a cave. We've all wandered away from God. We've all followed in the footsteps of our first parents. We've all willfully alienated ourselves from our creator. We've all followed our own passions and desires. We've all wanted to explore the back recesses of this cave called life. Some of us have gone further in than others. But the truth is that we've all cut ourselves off from God. We've all denied him. We've all rejected him in some capacity. We've all had moments in our lives where we think we know better than God. He's mean and stupid. In fact, we've all demanded that he give an account of himself to us. How many times have I heard that statement made? In fact, some people here potentially are still in that space. That space of refusing to acknowledge Yahweh is the one true God. And either overtly or subtly, you're demanding that he explain himself to you. That he owes you an excuse for the way the world is or why your life has its particular shape presently. Anyone here tracking with that? You're not alone. All of us have been there at one point or other. But I want you to see the scary truth of that reality in which we find ourselves all included in. It's that it's this attitude of assuming to be able to question the God of the universe... This Pharaoh-like rejection and willful ignorance of all that God has made plain about himself, about his eternal power and his divine nature being seen through what has been made in creation. So Paul says in Romans 1, so that all men are without excuse. 
It's this attitude that makes all of us, all of humanity, inexcusable before God, cut off from his good grace, trapped with no way out. You know, Paul makes this ultra plain in Romans. In fact, Romans 3.23, what does he say? He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then quoting from heaps of different Psalms, he makes a similar point just a few verses earlier. Romans 3, 10 and 11. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become worthless. That is hard stuff to read, friends. That is hard stuff to hear, but it's God's just assessment of all of humanity. Trapped by sin, turned away from him, like Israel in Egypt, like a Thai soccer team in a cave, completely hopeless and helpless to free ourselves. Now, I want to ask you, I wish I could eyeball of everyone in here individually, have you realised this yet? It's a heavy thing to contemplate. It's not a nice idea. It's not even popular to say, much less popular to believe, but it's entirely consistent with God's revealed word and it's entirely true. You see, simply ignoring or denying uncomfortable truths does not make them less true. Like Pharaoh, denying the obvious, proven truth that Yahweh alone is God did not spare him from the reality of that truth. And everyone here has got to get, every single person has got to get to that point in life when you realize collectively and individually we are all trapped. We are all inexcusable before the perfect, holy and righteous God, unable to clean ourselves or make ourselves right, unable to make our way back out the cave system, however you want to picture it. Trapped without hope, without help from ourselves, we need to get there, despair in ourselves that we might have hope of hearing the next bit because the amazing truth is this, friends. The amazing truth is this, because of his great love. Because of his free and willful decision, not compelled by anything other than what is already part of his given character, his true character. God has set his affections on people who, like Israel, don't deserve it. Yahweh has provided a means of deliverance for all those who otherwise recognize themselves as helpless and hopeless. And friends, Jesus is that rescue plan. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is God's provided sacrifice as a substitute and it's by trusting in his blood that God will pass over anyone and everyone from facing the wrath in judgment at the end of time that they otherwise deserve. You see, this whole event in Exodus is preparing Israel and preparing the nations through Israel to recognize God's ultimate rescue plan. This is why John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1, 29. This is why Jesus is crucified at the specific time of the Passover celebration in Israel, John 18, 28. This is why Jesus is spoken, uh, speaks of his body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins when he's sharing in that last Passover meal with his disciples just before his arrest and crucifixion, Matthew 26, 26 to 28. This is why none of Jesus' bones were broken, though those crucified on either side of him had their legs smashed in. 
John 19, 32 to 33. This is why the lamb sacrificed on the very first Passover had to be one without blemish because it was prefiguring the perfect sacrifice of the sinless Son of God who Peter then deliberately describes in 1 Peter 18 and 19, a lamb without blemish or defect, the preciousness of whose blood is able to redeem sinners, to reconcile them to God. None of this is without purpose, folks. None of this is without significance and purpose. And so the only question to finish on today is have you participated in God's Passover provision through Jesus? Have you, by faith, and demonstrated through trusting obedience, covered yourself in the blood of Christ? What the heck does that mean? It means are you trusting his sacrifice as your substitute so that God will legitimately pass over the judgment you otherwise deserve when you stand before him on the final day, when you meet him in death or if Jesus returns again? Are you trusting and pleading the blood of Christ to cover your life? It's not a means of earning your salvation. Don't get me wrong here, folks. It's not a means of meriting your forgiveness. It's the means of accepting the salvation and forgiveness that God has purposed in Jesus. If you get on YouTube and you look at the Thai cave rescue, there's a video that those first cave divers who found those boys up the back end of the cave, there's a video of their first uh, encounter with them. It wasn't just finding them and taking them out. You have to watch the documentary to see how arduous and how extraordinarily, again, mind-blowing the rescue was. But could you imagine those rescue divers meeting those Thai boys in the cave? They did nothing to earn their rescue. But imagine they said, no thanks, we'll just sit here. (laughs) What? No, what you're proposing seems too hard to do because what they had to do was allow themselves to be taken, physically dragged through, underwater, mask on the whole bit, dragged and it took him like two hours to drag him through the cave system. Would you, can you imagine that? Two hours for kids who had never scuba dived to be scuba diving in murky, current-filled water through tight squeezes, so tight at times they had to take off their tanks and push the boy through the hole and his tank after him. They did nothing to earn their rescue. They simply had to trust the rescue divers to deliver them out of the cave. And they demonstrated this trust by following their instructions and lying there. <laughs> Friends, are you doing this with Jesus? That's my question to you. Our Passover lamb. The only way to be delivered from the penalty of sin, death and judgment by God that we otherwise deserve. Friends, I pray that you are. And if not yet, I pray you will. <laughs> Because there's no other way out. Whether you're the Pharaoh of Egypt, or as we've been reminded this week, whether you're the Queen of England, or whether you're a welder from Wagga, death will claim everyone eventually, and God's judgment of your life will follow, and it will reveal everyone a sinner. It will reveal everyone an enemy, everyone a rebel, without excuse, trapped by their own sinfulness, but there is a way out. And the only hope of peace 
with God and the hereafter is to trust in his Passover provision in Jesus, the Lamb of God, who has conquered death and promised everlasting life to all who put their hope in his blood. Make sure it's you, folks.